0: Our heavenly Father, how grateful we are that You have seen fit to love us to such a degree that You gave Your Son to come to this planet to live a life that we could never live, indeed to die in our place and take upon Himself the just punishment for all of our sins. And that kind of fatherly love is not lost on us on this Father's Day as we recognize and honor fathers who are human, knowing, Father, that in some small way, we might echo the loving kindness of our heavenly Father. Father, we pray that as we open the Word of God this morning, that You would already begin preparing our hearts and minds to receive it, and to hear the Word proclaimed in such a way as not only to be understood, but to be transformative in our hearts and minds, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I think it's interesting to uh, study the attacks of atheists on the faith of Christians. Every one of us at one time or another, I believe, has felt those kinds of accusations that faith is a crutch for us that you need to believe in God because you're afraid to to face reality, that there's something weak or even cowardly about having faith in God. Faith then is seen by the atheists to be a psychological phenomenon. God is a figment of our imaginations. Uh, God is an imaginary creation of humanity to explain what we can't explain. The only reason why you believe in God is that you lack the psychological strength to maintain sanity. And that's why atheists over the ages have posed the question, if there is no God, why is there religion? They treat it as an anthropological issue because they're so curious to ask why, if there is no God, why is there religion of one sort or another in essentially every culture on this planet? Different atheists have had different takes on that question. For uh, Freud, the issue was the control of nature. He argued that since societies and cultures have found the the forces of nature impossible to control, they assume that there must be other gods other than humans who are able to control things. And so human beings have humanized nature. Freud argued that if forces of nature have some kind of personality, then we can approach them, we can argue with them, we can plead with them, we can appease them, we can sacrifice to them, we can, we can deal with them. And that's his explanation for where religion came from. It doesn't matter so much to him whether it was polytheistic animism or the monotheism that we find in the Bible. Freud argued that the Judeo-Christian religion in particular was based upon tribal relations with the fathers essentially as the key personages in those tribes. There would always be struggles between fathers and sons, much of which involved guilt, which would only be resolved through sacrifices. And so Freud looked at the Christian faith in that way. Of course, he had other things to say about mothers and sons, but that's another topic for another time. Bottom line, according to Freud, Christian religion originated psychologically through issues of the control of nature and relationships within tribes and families. Karl Marx, on the other hand, for him the issue was economic revolution. Uh, Marx's world was materialistic and economic. Religion was a manifestation of the class struggle. It was the means by which the ruling class controlled the proletariat. Friedrich Nietzsche, his issue was the control of power. Uh, the source of the, he was the source of the God is dead theology. Some of you might remember that being popular back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, by the way, I remember seeing a, a bumper sticker on a vehicle. I can't remember whether it was a car or a truck. Two bumper stickers, actually, on the left side of the bumper read, quote, God is dead, unquote, Nietzsche. On the right side of the car, the bumper sticker read, quote, Nietzsche is dead, unquote, God. (laughs) That shows you where most of these philosophers end up. But for Nietzsche, religion was based on the struggle for power, fear of losing power uh, to a supreme power, a hero. Uh, Nietzsche would call him the Superman or the Übermensch in German. He contrasted a slave and a master morality. The slave morality exalts weakness, whereas the master morality exalts one's own strength. He looked at Christianity as developing a morality which controls the superman and protects the weak. So Christianity to him was fundamentally weak. It was wimpish. It exuded this slave morality. So Nietzsche's philosophy most forcefully was brought to bear in the work of Adolf Hitler. Marx in Stalin and Mao Zedong, and so these philosophers did more than simply sit in their ivory towers and expostulate on things. They actually did effect significant societal and cultural issues. So formally or informally, the Christian faith is attacked as essentially being a a psychological phenomenon. You are believers if you are because of psychology, and that puts us on the defensive, uh, the onus of responsibility then is on us to sort of prove the historical elements of the faith, uh, to demonstrate the philosophical proofs for the existence of God, and to demonstrate that there are elements of the Christian faith which can't be explained by psychology. And these are all the legitimate pursuits of what we call in Christian theology apologetics. But interestingly, with respect to the issue of the psychological origins of faith, I remember when I was in grad school, I read The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I think everybody ought to read a Russian novel once in their lifetime. That was mine. Uh, Some of you might find that it takes a lifetime to read a Russian novel. But the Brothers Karamazov was a story of three brothers, that's why it was labeled the way it is, and, and the protagonist was a man named Alyosha, and, and the theme of the book actually has to do with the nature of faith. And I don't remember much about the book, that was decades ago, but I do remember one particular conversation between a couple of characters that made a deep Im- impression on me. One character argued, like the atheists do, that faith was a psychological phenomenon. But the other character cautioned that to explain anything by psychology was a two-edged sword, that the opposite could always be proved by the same logic, by the same means. So just as easily as faith could be attributed to psychology, so could unbelief. So why are we so defensive? Why are we always being accused of needing faith for psychological reasons? Why why doesn't anyone ever accuse the atheists uh, of the psychological foundation for their unbelief? Atheists would say, if God does not exist, why is there religion? We should ask, if God does exist, why are there atheists? That's essentially the question that, that Paul asks and answers in Romans chapter 1. We learned in the previous messages in our series in the book of Romans that the theme of Romans is the gospel. And in the last message, we learned that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and we learned why he was not ashamed, that the gospel is good news, that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is unto salvation. We learned that the gospel is for everyone who believes, that the gospel is applied by faith, and that... That the gospel reveals God's righteousness, that's why he's not ashamed. We also learned that that Paul doesn't immediately unpack the meaning of the gospel following that thematic verses, those thematic verses of verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. And that essentially he'll start to do that in chapter 3 where he repeats the essence of the theme verses in chapter 3 verses 21 to 24. We saw that last week. But in the meantime, in verses 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul then clears some ground. He does some site preparation for understanding the gospel. He tries to lay the foundation answering the question, why should we be at all interested in the gospel? Well, Paul argues in chapter 1 and verse 18 and following that in order to understand the gospel as good news, we need to understand the bad news, and that's what he's doing in this section. And specifically, we need to understand that we are the bad news. We are sinners. We are destitute of righteousness. We are desperately in need of the righteousness that only comes from Jesus Christ, And so Paul does that by demonstrating the sinful condition of humanity, and he does it by looking at two groups of people, in fact, the only two groups of people that matter in terms of relationship to God in the first century, the only two groups of people that would have come to mind to those to whom he was writing, and that is Jews and Gentiles. Paul shows that both Jews and Gentiles are in need of righteousness, and so he begins in chapter 1, verse 18, primarily with the Gentiles in mind. The text for our message this morning is in chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. So hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, and exchange the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things we need to do some right thinking about wrath okay i know the word right should be spelled without the w i get that but it wouldn't then be as an exact an alliteration with the word wrath would it So that's why I put it in there. I didn't think that uh, you would mind that. I thought it actually might make some of you smile. And after all, this is a message about wrath, and there isn't much else to smile about. But I do think it's important to do some right thinking about wrath, regardless of how you spell it. When I was in college, I was introduced to the four spiritual laws. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the Four Spiritual Laws, published and distributed by Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CRU. It is one of the most widely used methods of sharing your faith in the world, a very concise way to present the gospel and to bring people to a point of decision. I have used that little pamphlet back in the day, in many cases, in sharing the gospel uh, with many friends. It can be a very effective tool, the four spiritual laws. Now, one of the things that we know about the four spiritual laws was that Paul didn't write it. And that's because the first of the four spiritual laws, the first thing that the four spiritual laws says that we should share with someone is this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you remember that from the four spiritual laws? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But this is how Paul begins his presentation with the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A little different in the first law, isn't it? If Paul had written the four four spiritual laws, I think he would have put it this way. God is angry with you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, our tendency is to to ease into a conversation about the gospel. That's appropriate. try to develop a relationship so we would not offend someone unnecessarily. We try to meet them on some common ground. And one of the common grounds that we uh, try to meet someone on is often spoken of in terms of felt needs. Once uh, someone expresses their felt need, then we try to show them how the gospel can meet that need. But that is precisely what Paul does not do. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, Paul knew that what matters in the final analysis of whether, is not whether we feel good or have our felt needs met or receive a meaningful experience. What matters is whether we come into a right relationship with God. And to have that happen, we need to begin with the truth that we are not in a right relationship with God On the contrary, we are under God's wrath and are in danger of everlasting condemnation at His hands. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way a few years earlier, why is Paul ready to preach the gospel in Rome or anywhere else? He does not say it is because he knows that many of them, the Romans, are living defeated lives and that he has got something to tell them that will give them victory. He does not say to them, I want to come and preach the gospel to you in Rome because I have had a marvelous experience and I want to tell you about it in order that you may have the same experience. This is not what Paul does. There is no mention here of any experience. He is not talking in terms of their happiness or some particular state of mind or something that might appeal to them as certain possibilities do, but this staggering, amazing thing, the wrath of God. And he puts it first. It is the thing he says at once. So what is the wrath of God? Well the word for wrath in the Greek is orge, there are different words for wrath in the Greek. This is not meaning a sudden outburst, but this kind of wrath is an abiding anger on the part of God. It's not an irrational anger. Is this not God flying off the handle in a fit of rage like a petulant child who doesn't get his way? This is an abiding revulsion to the actions and attitudes of God's moral creatures, which are fundamentally antagonistic to his nature and character. And the basis of his anger is the sinfulness of humanity. And that's why Paul says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are two aspects of of essentially the same sin. Ungodliness, asabea in the Greek, is is general irreligion or irreverence. It's a state of positive opposition to God. And unrighteousness, adekia, is an assault against God's character and His righteousness. And both of these characteristics are centered in one particular sin. And that sin is that they are said to suppress The truth. Suppress the truth. In the Greek it's katako, which means to hold down or stifle or hinder. It also means to repress. And when we talk about repression, we're talking about psychology, aren't we? Well, why is it revealed? It's revealed by their unrighteousness, the text says. They suppress the truth with both positive and negative connotations. The word cataco can have both of those connotations. In the New Testament, it often means to hold fast to something. Uh, For example, even to spiritual values, even to hold fast to God. But here's something that is being held fast, is being held fast by unrighteousness. The truth is being suppressed illegally, immorally. The truth is being held down or repressed, and it should not be repressed. There has always been the suppression of truth and unrighteousness by everyone who has desired to live lives apart from the accountability of the almighty, holy, and righteous God. But it's hard to see a more blatant and obvious suppression of the truth than what is taking place currently in the trans movement. And you don't have to be a Bible reader to understand this. To reject what is plainly true scientifically and medically about one's sex at birth is a suppression of the truth, and the result is catastrophic for children especially. Children who we wouldn't trust to drive a car or to buy alcohol were saying that they should be given an opportunity to decide for themselves to pursue chemical castration and surgery to remove healthy body parts. That's what some people in our culture are espousing today. And this is ultimately what happens when the truth about God is suppressed, that damage is done to his moral creatures. I don't want you to misunderstand me, dear friends. There is suppression of truth in any sin that any of us commits. It's not that these particular sins are more egregious than many of the other kinds of sins that we see in our culture. Every time we disobey God, we are essentially suppressing the truth about God in one way or another. This is just obvious and should be obvious even to those who are uninitiated in the things of God. By the way, I need to tell you as well, it's not unloving to say these things. It is, God is not unloving to reveal His wrath about these things because to suppress the truth and unrighteousness is destructive of God's creation. And it is the means by which humanity will destroy itself. And the most loving thing we can say is to agree with God and say, stop. God really does have a wonderful plan for your life. And that's the source of his anger. Long before there was the trans movement, there was plenty of truth suppression. And nearly every facet of human life is threatened by any and every ideology that suppresses the truth by unrighteousness. And this is why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is why God is angry. He's lovingly angry. And we'll see how He's angry in the coming messages. Now we've been doing some right thinking about wrath, we need to do some plain thinking about God. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The truth that is being suppressed is a knowledge of God, not an obscure knowledge not the only kind of knowledge that the spiritual elite can understand, like mystics or modern-day Gnostics. No, this is knowledge of God that is evident and that is plain and it is obvious. In fact, it is even evident within them, really among them, as the text says. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The context has shown that The creation is external evidence, but God has made sure that every human being has received that evidence. God has shown it to them. Now one of the things that we see in this verse is the aspect of God's character known in theology as perspicuity. Now you all know how fond I am of complicated theological concepts that begin with the letter P. Remember propitiation, remember that? this is perspicuity. It means something that is clearly expressed and easily understood. We can't know everything there is to know about God. God is infinite, and we're finite. But God has revealed Himself in ways that are clear and that are obvious. We can know about God. What we can know about God is plain to them, the text says, and that's God's perspicuity. Knowledge is plain because God has made it plain. To claim lack of evidence for God is to accuse God of sin. Bertrand Russell, the legendary skeptic of the last century, said he didn't believe because of lack of evidence. In doing so, he compounded one sin upon another. His first sin was unbelief. His second sin was accusing God of being the cause of his unbelief. I'd hate to have to answer for his first sin, But then to have to answer for the second is terrifying. By the way, Russell didn't call himself an atheist. He called himself an agnostic. That's what a lot of those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness like to do. Agnostic sounds a little bit softer. It gives the impression that they are thoughtful, circumspect, reasonable people. They're just considering things. The word comes from the Greek agnosis. And the word in the Greek means without knowledge. The Latin translation of agnosis is ignoramus. (laughs) When Bertrand Russell or any other so-called agnostic or atheist says they don't have enough evidence, they are lying through their teeth. Because God has made it plain to them. He has made his attributes plain to them. What is God revealing himself so plainly about? Verse 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. His invisible attributes are in mind, his eternal power, God's extraordinary abilities no one could have produced anything like we see in the creation even in the cosmos than a God of the Bible. And then there is the divine nature, the cause of all that exists is beyond human capacities. Only a divine being could have done these things. And what is the medium of God's communication, medium in the sense of an artist, medium of communication? Well, he says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The creation, in no uncertain terms, displays the nature and character of God. The created world is the canvas on which the supreme artist has painted his self-portrait. Parallel passage in the Old Testament to this is Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The creation displays the nature and character of God in unmistakable ways. And those who suppress the truth about God in creation find themselves to be the objects of the abiding wrath of the Almighty God. That's the message that Paul brings. But it is the wrath of a loving God who indeed has a wonderful plan for your life, who in love sent His Son Jesus Christ to give you the righteousness that you so desperately need If you will only stop fighting the truth about God, and cast yourself on His mercy, and trust in Jesus Christ alone, in His righteousness, and His having paid the penalty for your sin. Even the greatest truth suppressor, even the greatest atheist, is not without hope. But how has humanity normally responded to this display of the nature and and character of God? How has humanity suppressed the truth? Well, verse 21 and following says this, "'For although they knew God, "'they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, "'but they became futile in their thinking, "'and their foolish hearts were darkened. "'Claiming to be wise, they became fools "'and exchanged the glory of the immortal God "'for images resembling mortal man and birds "'and animals and creeping things.'" There is, in the human capacity, a will against worship. Having suppressed the truth about God, although every human being knows about God, knows that He exists, knows His eternal power and divine nature, everyone, they will do everything they can to avoid worshiping the one being in the whole universe who is worthy of worship. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Now, The first step is very subtle. We simply start by ignoring God. We do everything we can to to live as if he didn't exist, to live without him. Even if we believe that he exists, we live as practical atheists. Oz Guinness puts it this way. He says, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, man does not thank God for his mercy, for his goodness, for his dealings with us in providence. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is the father of mercies, yet people go through the whole of their lives in this world and they never thank him. They ignore him completely. That is how they show their attitude toward God. In this way, they suppress the truth that has been revealed concerning him. And then Dostoevsky puts it this way, You have to have at least one Russian novelist this morning quoted. Dostoevsky said, if he is not stupid, he is monstrously ungrateful. Phenomenally ungrateful. In fact, I believe that the best definition of man is the ungrateful biped. Then there is futility in thinking, Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking. The mind of the unbeliever becomes distorted. He or she sees the world upside down and their thinking becomes foolishness, futil, futility. That's why you can have the most brilliant people play the fool. How can how you can use all of that brilliance to make decisions and enact policies that destroy whole societies, even whole civilizations. We've seen it over and over. Those who will not worship God will not for long have a mind capable of an accurate appraisal of the human condition, and certainly not a mind capable of leading a society in solving its many problems. In fact, the more they try to solve them, the worse they get. They find the law of unintended consequences seems to always prevail because those who suppress the truth are futile in their thinking. And not only is the mind affected, they have darkened souls. The soul, the mind, the will, and the emotion, the core of the human personality, the heart is darkened. The seat of not just emotions but morality and of conscience is darkened. It's appropriate that we have a little thunder, don't you think, this morning? (laughs) Verse 21, for although they knew God and did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Emotions enraged over all the wrong things. Moral inclinations and motions are turned in the wrong direction. What is true is deemed to be false. What is false is deemed to be true. What is right is cast aside as immoral, and that which is immoral is the new virtue. We see darkened hearts all around us these days. And finally, there is a foolish exchange. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Human beings are incurably religious, by the way. C.S. Lewis said, when people turn from God, it's not that they will worship nothing, it's that they will worship anything. They will not worship God, but they will always worship something. They will worship creatures, or they will worship animals, or they will worship idols, which are representations of those things, or they will worship the planet, or they will worship power, or they will worship influence, or they will worship material possessions, or the all-time favorite, they will worship themselves. It's a foolish exchange, isn't it? As Jeremiah puts it in chapter 2 of his prophetic word, Why would you forsake the fountain of living waters for a broken cistern that can hold no water? That's what the human being has done. That's what human beings do in the suppression of the truth about God. It's why God is angry. It's why the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's why human beings will do anything to avoid worshiping God. It's why human beings are literally losing their minds as well as their hearts in the process. The consequence of all of this is that human beings who suppress the truth about God are without excuse. One of the greatest human attributes, and we all share in it, even us believers, we share in it, let's admit it, from time to time if we're not careful, we all exhibit in great frequency is the making of excuses. We love to make excuses, and we're good at it. James Boyce said, and yet, in spite of our finite nature, human beings do seem to have an almost infinite capacity for some things. One of them is making excuses. Accuse a person of something, and regardless of how obvious that fault may be, the individual immediately begins to make self serving declarations. It wasn't my fault. Nobody told me. My intentions were good. You shouldn't be so critical. The two least spoken sentences in the English language, he said, are probably I was wrong and I'm sorry. Gene and I watched a, a movie a couple of nights ago. It was the story of George Foreman. It included a scene when, some months after George had been beaten by Muhammad Ali in the famous Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire, George showed up at Ali's home unannounced. And Ali didn't know what exactly to expect. He, he thought perhaps George would, would push him for a rematch or would otherwise engage in an argument of trash-talking, which seems to be the coin of the realm for boxers in those days. But George simply came to ask Ali for forgiveness. Ali reminded him, I beat you. Don't you remember that? But George was there to ask him forgiveness for forgiveness for hating Ali during the time of the fight. It was a stunning moment, one that would lead the two adversaries to becoming the best of friends for the rest of the life of Ali. And it was the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that led George Foreman to forever cast aside excuses and to reconcile with his nemesis. When the atheist or the agnostic or anyone who suppresses the truth about God stands before God at the judgment, there will be no self-serving declarations. There will be no excuses. James Boyce says there is enough evidence of God in a flower to lead a child as well as a scientist to worship him. There is sufficient evidence in a tree, a pebble, a grain of sand, a fingerprint to make us glorify God and thank him. And then there is the statement of Martin Luther, the atheist trembles at the rustling of a leaf. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you in recognition that you are the holy and almighty God, that you are altogether righteous, and that you have every right to be diametrically opposed and angry with your moral creatures who find the truth that you have so plainly given us and then suppress it, act as if we don't understand it and reject it. But at the same time, O God, we recognize that you have desired to bring reconciliation to the human race by sending your Son. And we pray, Father, that everyone and anyone who might have objections to the things of God might be exposed by this message, to recognize that the suppression of the truth about God is reckless and is destined to destroy. And we pray, Father, that you would lead anyone and everyone who might be convicted to turn their selves over to the Lord Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness that can only come through Jesus. Because we know, Father, that no amount of truth suppression is without hope in the person of Jesus Christ who comes to change us and lead us into a right relationship with you. We ask that you'll do that, even in these moments, with whoever's listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.